First Kings chapter 10, we've been studying through the life of Solomon. We've seen how he is a, uh, we could call him a sharp and a shrewd businessman. He doesn't have a real heart for the Lord like his father David did. Uh, we've seen some compromise in his life, and he's had a lot of success in business. We've seen his, he's, he's wealthy. At this point in his life, you could say that he's at the pinnacle of his life. I mean, he's got wealth, he's got fame, he's got fortune. Uh, he's, he's got what, he, he, he would be the rock star of society. He would be the one that is, everyone looks to and is talking about. He would be on the magazine covers. He would be, everyone's looking. He's, he's the cool one. He's the wealthiest one. And, and he would have all this. And people are coming to talk to him. And they want to hear his advice. They want to hear his great wisdom and his great counsel. Unfortunately, he doesn't take his own advice many times. But he still is able to give out the wisdom. Because remember, that's what he asked God for. When God said, what do you want? He said, I want wisdom. I, want to be, I need to know how to lead your people, God. And God said, I'll give you that and much more. I'll give you the wealth and the, the notoriety and all that that goes along with it. So tonight we're going to pick up in chapter 10, verse 1, and we're going to see the queen of Sheba is going to come and visit Solomon. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. The Queen of Sheba was from an area known as Southern Arabia. It would be what's known today as, uh, as Yemen. Modern-day Yemen would be the area that she's from. It was known for being a wealthy area, having lots of gold, spices, exotic or precious-type woods for building things. It was an area that was ruled by kings or queens. It's a long trip for her to come up to Jerusalem. It's about a 1,500-mile journey. And you, know, say that, you say, well, that's not too bad. Well, it is if you're, if you're going by horse. You know, or you're walking. I mean, it's not bad if you've got to get on an airplane and spend a few hours in the air. But if you're going by horse or by caravan, that is a really long journey. And it took quite a bit of time. So she's traveling about 1,500 miles. And she is probably coming as part of a trade delegation. She's heard about Solomon. She's wondering, can I do business with Solomon and his kingdom? So she's coming to find out if the things that she's heard were true. Was this, really, was this man really as wise as, as, as everyone says he is? Is he really as wealthy? as everyone says these you know they didn't have cameras they couldn't take pictures and put it on facebook where they would hear something they'd have to go check it out for themselves it, it wasn't like they could put it on the news or let everyone see it they had to actually go check it out so she's on her way to check it out now notice it says in verse one that she came with some hard questions and we're not told what these questions were we're not told what they're about or what kind of questions she's asking uh, but we're told they're hard they're difficult Perhaps they were philosophical questions. Perhaps they were personal things going on. We're really not told, but, we're, but we can kind of surmise that they're, they're, they're difficult questions. One uh, commentator wrote this. He said, the hard questions were not just riddles, but included difficult, diplomatic, and ethical questions. The test was not an academic exercise, but to see if he would be a trustworthy business partner, partner and a reliable ally capable of giving help. So perhaps she was testing out his, you know, is he trustworthy? Can we do business with him? Can I, can I send goods back and forth? Can I expect this, you know, to, to, him, to him to reciprocate and send back what, and do what he's going to say he's going to do? You know, and that's possibly what she was doing. Now look at verse 2. She came to Jerusalem with a great retinue, which is a, a, a lot of advisors, a lot of people, an entourage, if you would, with camels that bore spices, very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. So Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. So she arrives in Jerusalem. She has this large entourage. She's looking to trade. She's looking to do business. She's got some things in her heart. 
And she's no doubt traveling like a queen. She's traveling in royalty. She's traveling the way that royalty would travel. Uh, she, and she's coming with gifts and, and ready to trade. And, and being a wealthy woman, being a queen, uh, she probably, she, she knew what it was to, to rule over a kingdom. She, she, had, she, had the, she knew what it was to have power. This is, you know, as she comes into Jerusalem, nothing's different. I mean, she understands that what it means to be a king and a queen. She's not just an average, ordinary person. And then in verse 4, it says... When the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, so she'd heard about it, now she sees all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers, his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord. There was no more spirit in her. She'd heard about Solomon. She'd heard about all this stuff, but when she sees it, when she actually gets there in Jerusalem and she sees what's going on, we're told there's no more spirit in her. And what, is, well, what does that mean? What's he saying here? Let me, let me see if I can explain it to you. Have you ever looked at something so majestic, so beautiful, maybe the Grand Canyon, maybe a mountain scene, maybe something where you just look and you go, oh, you just exhale. It's just, it's just guys, this is a good time to look over and tell your wife that it was her. <laughs> tell, tell her it was her. <laughs> it's, that, it's, that, it's that feeling that goes, Oh, and, and, and the word for spirit in the, in the Hebrew, it's ruah, it means breath or wind. So it's the idea of when she actually physically sees Solomon and she hears his wisdom and she sees all the stuff that we're told here, all the food on his table, all of his servants, the way they're seated, what they're wearing, his cuppers, when she sees it all, she's just like, wow, this is unbelievable. This is absolute. I thought I knew what wealth was. I'm not even close. I thought I knew what wisdom was. I'm not even close. Adam Clark, uh, one of the commentators I like to read, he said this. He said, what happened to the Queen of Sheba is a natural and not an uncommon effect which will be produced in, delicate sense, in a delicate, sensible mind at the sight of rare and extraordinary productions of art. So it's something that we would all feel if we saw something magnificent. It's like, oh, speechless, speechless. Nothing left, nothing, nothing else to say. It's just, you're just in awe. You're awestruck. Now look at verse uh, 6. What she says. Then she said to the king, it was, it was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes. And indeed, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom, your prosperity, they exceed the fame of which I heard. Happy are your men and happy are these your servants who stand continually before you and they hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel because the Lord has loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. In other words, what she says is, Solomon, everything I heard about your words of wisdom Everything I heard about your wealth, everything I heard was true. As a matter of fact, I didn't even believe what I heard. What I heard was so magnificent, I doubted it. I didn't even believe it. But now that I've got here and I've seen it, it was what I heard was only half of the truth because it's much greater than what I heard. It wasn't even defined properly to me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard, she said. Your men and your servants are happy serving you. That's verse 8. Happy are your men and happy are these your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. 
In other words, these guys are happy just to be around. They just want to hear you talk, Solomon. The wisdom that you're, that's coming off of you is just unbelievable. They just want to be there. It's a joyful, it's a wonderful thing to serve a great, wise, and wealthy king. It is a happy thing to serve a king like Solomon. But how much happier, how much greater, how much more wonderful would it be, is it, to serve Jesus Christ? Because if Solomon was wise, Christ is wiser. If Solomon was wealthy, Christ is wealthier. If Solomon had power, Christ is far more powerful. And that's the king that we get to serve. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ would, rec he would say that in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42. You don't need to turn there. I'll read it to you unless you want to. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, it says this. The queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Now listen here. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. She said, in other words, what he's saying is the queen, uh, the queen of Sheba came from the ends of the earth. She traveled 1,500 miles to hear Solomon's wisdom, and there is someone greater than Solomon standing in your midst. I mean, he's talking about himself there. Someone greater than Solomon is standing, you, standing there before you. If this would only be our heart, if we could see the value in the serving, if we could glean off the wisdom, but notice what the scripture says about them. Let's run with this just for a minute. Look at how Solomon's servants are acting before him. This is a picture of how we should be before Jesus Christ. Look what he says. They stand continually before their king. That word stand, it means to, it means to be planted. It means they stand. They're not wishy-washy. They're not serving this king one day and that king another. Their king is, they, they are standing before King Solomon and they are serving. What do you need, king? How can I help you? What is it? What can, how can I serve you? What, show, just give me direction, king. Whatever you tell me. I don't doubt your wisdom. I don't doubt your logic. I'm standing. I'm planted here. I'm not moving is what they're saying. Oh, if we would do that with Christ. Oh, if we would stand before him and we wouldn't look at it and go, well, God, are you sure you know what you're doing? I don't really like this. This is kind of a little uncomfortable in my life, God, right now. And I really wish you'd take it away. That's not standing before the king. Standing before the king says, I have no idea what God's doing. But I know he's God. And I know he's wise. And I know he's doing something to, for me. I know he, what, what I'm going through is going to benefit me in eternity. That's what it means to stand before the king. Stand before him. What can I do for you, Lord Jesus Christ? I, here I am. I'm available to be used. I'm a servant. After all, what does a good servant do? Just wait serves, waits for the next order, right? How do you know if you're a good servant? By the way you act when somebody treats you like one. Ooh, that hurts, doesn't it? When someone treats you like a servant, they say, hey, can you go get me this? Get it yourself. That's not a good servant. A good servant says, sure, hold on. A good servant says, can I get you anything? That's what a good servant says. That's our relationship with the Lord. What can I do for you, Lord? You see, so often it's, come, come on, Lord, come on, we're going, we're, we're going to go do this together, and I want you to be with me. No, no, let's be the servants of the king. That's what Solomon's, are, that, she, she's impressed with the way his servants are standing, and we have one far greater to serve, King Jesus in Jesus Christ. They stand continually before their king. And number two, look what, he, look what it says. They hear, they hear the wisdom of their king. They hear, now, I have, to, I have to be clear. The word for hear, it means not only to listen, but it also means to obey. So it's not just listening, it's obeying. You know, because it's possible to listen to what somebody says. You can listen to a wise person and not do a thing they say. And, and that's not hearing. That's not what he's talking about here. 
In other words, it's possible to listen to what Jesus, you can come to church and you can hear the word being taught and you, it can pour into your life. But if you don't obey it, then you're not hearing it. You're not really hearing it. You're not really serving. It's like the, the master that says to the servant, go do this. And you go, yeah, I heard that. But it never gets done. That, that's not the kind of servants that, he's, that, that we're seeing here in front of Solomon. We have the opportunity to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. How much greater is he than Solomon? We ask yourself, are you standing continually before the king? Are you being rocked to and fro like a boat out on the waves, back and forth? Here I am, there I am, where I am, I don't know where I am. When things are tough, I'm with Jesus. When things are good, I'm on my own. I'll come back when things get tough again. That's not standing before the king. Are you hearing? Are you hearing the word of God? Are you obeying the word of God? When the Lord puts on your heart, when he in that still small voice, and when he in that word of scripture jumps out and says, that's for you, what do you do with it? Do you obey it? Or do you go, well, I'm not quite there yet. Well, Lord, can you confirm it for me? Well, Lord, uh, I would, but you see, those good servants don't make excuses. They simply walk in obedience. They just simply wait for the next command. It doesn't mean that the command is going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's going to be done in five minutes. It might be a long project that he's working on in your life. But are you willing, are you being obedient to what God is doing? If you're not, then you're not being a good servant. If this would be our heart, how joyful and wonderful it would be to serve God, to serve Christ. Think about that. How joyful and wonderful. Every day I wake up, I get to serve Jesus. Every day, anyway, maybe he'll give me a day of rest today. Maybe he's going to give me a phone call that's going to drive me nuts. That's okay, I'm serving the Lord. Maybe he's going to, my boss is going to get on my case. Maybe my coworker is going to say something that offends me. That's okay, I'm serving the Lord. Maybe whatever it is that's going on. Can we say that we're just going to serve the Lord and, and he's, we're going to stand before him and we're going to hear his grace, we're going to hear his words poured into our heart and not just our own ideas, our own things? That's what she's impressed with because these servants are standing before Solomon doing exactly that. How much greater would it be if we did it for Jesus Christ? That's what he's teaching us here. Look at verse 9. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord has loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. Remember what I've said, Israel's job was to represent God to the people. And this is the response that the people should have. Notice what she says. It's an example of what God wanted to do for Israel under the promises of the Old Covenant. God promised Israel that if they obeyed under the Old Covenant, he would bless them so tremendously, so amazingly that the world would notice, look at that guy, he's blessed, and they would give glory to God. That's the way that it's supposed to happen. They're supposed to see the blessings on the nation Israel, and they're, they're supposed to represent God, the Hebrew God, Jehovah, Yahweh to all of the other nations by their blessing. And if they won't do it that way, then they're going to represent it by their cursing. Because they're going to walk by a desolate land that says they, they failed to serve God. They, they didn't do what they were supposed to do. Now listen, I want to show you that promise because it's important. If you want to turn there, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1 and verse 10. This is what God says. Chapter 28, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1 and verse 10. It says this, Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments which I command you today, 
the Lord your God will set you high above all nations on the earth. Down in verse 10, then the people of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. God wanted to use the nations and he wanted to do it through Israel. He wanted to do it through an obedient and blessed Israel. If Israel did not obey, then God would speak to the nations through a disciplined Israel. And we'll come to see in future studies that's exactly what will take place. Now, it might bring to your question or bring to your mind the question, wait a minute, I thought we talked about Solomon having all these compromises. Why is God blessing Solomon so greatly? Why is he so wealthy? Why does he seem to be so blessed? Yet, as we've traveled through his life, we've seen little compromises here and there. Why, why is that the case? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that he's blessing him for his father, David. I don't know that Israel's being blessed for Solomon here. I think Israel might be being blessed for David because David was the man after God's own heart. And it's rather clear in our study of Solomon's life that he doesn't have the same heart for God that David had. But yet the blessings of God are continuing generationally is what we see taking place. Now, although the queen of Sheba is recognizing that the, God, the God of Israel, though she's recognizing him there, do you think that she came to worship the God of Israel? Do you think that she came to be saved, as we would call it in the Christian world? Do you think that she exchanged all of her other gods and says, now I'm serving the God of Israel? Some people would say, yeah, she, this is it, she does. But I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure about that. I don't know. When you look closely at verse 9, I see this. This is what she says. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Other things she says, the God of Israel delights in Solomon. The God of Israel sets Solomon on the throne. The Lord has loved Israel forever. The Lord has made Solomon a king to do justice and righteousness. Is there anything there about her personal feelings for the God of Israel? Does she mention anything about her own life, her own heart? I don't see anything written there. I'm not convinced, in other words, what I'm saying is I'm convinced that she came to to see, she came and she was impressed by the God of Israel, but she didn't come to know the God of Israel. She She didn't exchange all of her false gods for the God of Israel. She was just simply going, wow, your God's pretty cool, Solomon. He's really blessed you. It's amazing what your God's done, Solomon. It's incredible what your, how cool is this this building, these places, awesome, Your, your God's amazing. But yet she never came to know the God of Israel. You see, one, one commentator said this. He said, her statement about the blessing of the Lord on Israel and Solomon in verse 9 were no more than a polite reference to Solomon's God. There's no record that she accepted Solomon's God who was so majestically edified by the temple. Another commentator said this. He said, praise to the Lord implies recognition of Israel's national God and need not necessarily be an expression of personal faith. If the queen of Sheba came seeking, and she was amazed and impressed, but she left without knowing God, what a shame. She heard what God was doing. She heard about Solomon's wisdom. She came to see for herself. She said, it's greater than I ever imagined. It's greater than I ever saw. But if I'm right, as I suspect I could be, I am, she left without ever knowing God. She had an encounter with God. She saw the power of God, but she left without personally knowing God. There's a movement within the church body today. Maybe you've heard the term. It's called seeker-friendly. It's called seeker-friendly churches. And the idea is we don't want to offend anybody. 
We don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable, so we're, we're not going to talk about hell, and we're not going to talk about sin, and, and we just, you know, sometimes they'll play secular music before church and after church, so people will like the songs, and, and we're going to have a, a coffee shop, and we're going to have it make it real casual and comfortable, and, and make it so seeker-friendly so that nobody, nobody will ever be offended, no one will ever, we'll just make it fun, we'll make church fun and entertaining. Well, I want to walk through this, and I want you to look at the Queen of Sheba as a seeker. That's what she was. She was a seeker. She wanted to see who God was. Who, what is all this I'm hearing about? So she comes to seek. She's a seeker. Now let's just run through it. If she's not saved and she's not brought into a knowledge of the one true living God, the Hebrew God, then it means this. This is what happened. She heard about what God was doing in Israel. She came Oh, oh, she heard about the man that God was using in Israel. She heard about his wisdom. She came to see 1,500 miles. She traveled to see if what she heard was true. She came with gifts to offer. She brought gifts as an offering. She came with questions, and she wanted to learn. She came telling all that was in her heart, the scripture says. All that was in her heart, she came. She brought a bunch of people with her. She had an entourage with her, it tells us. She came, she saw the amazing facilities, the works, the houses, the temple. She saw it all amazing, glorious. She was impressed with what God had done. Wow, look at what God has done. But she went away without a relationship with God. You see, the God of the Hebrews remained just that, the God of the Hebrews. It didn't become her God. At least there's no evidence to that. Solomon impressed her with his wealth his splendor, his personality. But she returned home without an evident expression of faith in the God of Israel. He was just another God to her. Now I want to liken that to what if people come to church? What if people were to come to our church? What if they traveled from a long way away because they heard something cool was going on at Calvary Chapel and the little church on Pennsylvania Avenue? God's doing something there. People are impressed. You know, what about, let, let's even make, let's, let's make it bigger than our church. Let's, let's think the biggest, the coolest, the hippest church out there in the country. Think mega church, okay? We'll just make it bigger. Let's, let's go to the, the, the coolest mega church, just rolling in the people, thousands of people. Before we left Fort Lauderdale, Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, it had become a mega church. At one point, it was one of the top five fastest growing churches in the country. Thousands of people, four and five services on Sunday, two services on Saturday night. I mean, literally, the sanctuary was like a three or 4,000 people that sat, and they were just rolling them through. It was a monster church, and good church. I learned a lot, an incredible church. But think about this. Think about somebody hears that. Wow, what's going on over there? That, that, they're drawing quite a crowd. That's pretty good. And they come from a long way away. They're impressed with the pastor. Oh, the pastor's pretty cool. He's hip. He's relatable. Oh, he's kind of funny. He makes jokes once in a while. I, I like this. And they're entertained by the worship. Oh, there's a great band up there. Great band up there. They, they have a little smoke screen, smoke machine that does smoke and partway through it kind of gives you a really cool feeling. It becomes, becomes really surreal. And they have this big screen in the back that has all these different scenes that they can put on so you see the mountains and the clouds and it's really, really cool. And they even bring an offering. They put an offering in the offering box. People come with tough questions. They want to tell all their heart. They're looking for the truth. They come and they're impressed with the facilities. They're impressed with the building. They're impressed with the bookstore. They're impressed with the cafe or the radio station. They're impressed with the children's ministry. they got a big fish tank up there. 
really cool. The walls are painted really cool, and they got a really cool curriculum, and the, and the teachers are so happy, and they wear these little aprons with handprints on them or something. It's just really, really cool. We really like it, and they're impressed with that. They come away, they're even impressed with God. They're even willing to say, just like she said, wow, look what God's doing. The God of Israel's done this. God is amazing. Look what God's doing. But they walk away being impressed with God, but not immersed in Jesus Christ. They walk away being impressed. They want to join a church, but they don't want to join the body of Christ. They want to be part of a group, but not part of the body of Christ or the group that really matters. They feel better about themselves because they've come to church. Maybe they don't talk about sin or hell, but there's no real change in their life. When a seeker comes to a church, any church, and this includes our church, it's not enough to impress them with the facilities, programs, the organizations, the wealth, professionalism. When somebody is seeking comes to church, they need to be touched by God. They need to be touched from heaven. They need to have their eyes open to the truth. It's not about the organization. It's not about the church itself. It's not about the building or even what God's doing. It becomes about the people and their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If the people in the church aren't growing, the church is not doing any good. I don't care how big it gets. The people in the church have to be growing. If you're sitting here week after week after week after week and nothing's happening in your life, there's something wrong that needs to be addressed. If you sit in a church and you're never challenged, you're never, never brought to a place in Scripture that, you, I don't even like that, but I'm going to have to do I have to make a choice. I don't want to forgive. I don't want to do this. I, no. The Bible says I have to. All right. I'm gonna if you're struggling, that's good. That means you're growing. But if you can walk out and think, ah, no big deal. I'll think about it again next week. And you're not growing. You're, you're, you're like the Queen of Sheba. You've been impressed. You've been cool. It's cool. All right. I did that. I, I feel good about myself. But you failed to enter into the relationship with Jesus Christ. It's something that we have to be very, very mindful of. I don't want anybody to ever come to our church because they heard God was doing something cool or something neat or whatever the reason is, or there's a radio station. I want people to come to our church. They want, if they're going to be impressed with God and what he's doing, I want them to walk away with the relationship with Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we failed miserably. Sending someone off just being impressed? Big deal. You know, that just feeds the pride. Don't ever be impressed with me. I'm just the guy that God's using. Be impressed with the Lord. I don't want people walking away talking about me. Talk about Christ. Talk about God. Don't talk about the church. Talk about what God's doing. Don't talk about the radio station. Talk about what Christ is doing in your life. You see, that's the true ministry. When you can say, listen to what God has done in my life. I am not the same person. Let me share with you what Christ has done. Let me show you how I've changed. I want you to be impressed with what God is doing in your own life not somebody else's. If I were to ask you the question one-on-one, -on -one, are you blown away with God, what God's done in your life? Are you, blown, are, are you amazed at what God has done with you? If you can't say yes, then you need to go back and ask yourself, am I being obedient to what he's telling me to do? Am I really obeying it, or am I just kind of going through the motions? You see, God doesn't want to leave us where we are. Christ didn't die on the cross so we could just muddle through this life and eventually make it through someday. He wants us to live abundantly in him. He wants us to live free from sin. He wants us to be servants of his that he can use to advance the kingdom of God. If we're not doing that, then there's a holdup. There's a misstep somewhere. We have to be willing to go back and say, God, where is it? What is it that I failed to do? What is it? Is there sin in my camp somewhere? Am, am, I, am I missing something? Show me what it is, Lord. You see, we talk about revival. That's what starts revival. Revival will start in your own house, in your own heart, long before it starts on the streets somewhere. 
When you get revived, when people that are dead get revived, if you're alive, you don't need to be revived. If you're already doing that, yeah, God's, I, you'd be amazed at what God's done in life. Praise the Lord. That's exactly, go tell somebody about it. Let them hear it, but it might draw them in. That's your testimony. Share it with them. All right, verse 10. We got a long way to go. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold. For you money people, it's about $173 million. Remember, in today's value, a talent is worth about 75 pounds. He gave, she gave him 123 talents, so you'd take 100, 100, uh, uh, 75 pounds times 123 times 16 ounces in a pound, multiply it by about $1,200 an ounce is what gold's going for, roughly somewhere in there. I didn't look it up today. And you'll end up with about $173 million in today's money. Big money, huh? Talk about serious wealth. This is wealth. Spices in great quantity, precious stones, there never again came such abundance of spices as the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Also, the ships of Haram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought great quantities of almagwood and precious stones from Ophir. And the kings uh, uh, made steps of the almagwood for the house of the Lord and for the king's house. Also, harps, stringed instruments for singers. There never again came such almagwood, nor has the like been seen to this day. Now, King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all she desired, whatever she asked, besides what Solomon had given her according to the royal generosity. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. The queen of Sheba brought many offerings to Solomon. We read it here, about $173 million, not including the spices and the stones and the wood and all that she wanted. But notice verse 13. Notice, look what Solomon says it gave to her. Above what he gave to her, he gave to her according to the royal generosity. According to the royal generosity. What does that mean? Well, if you were going to give according to your royal generosity, it might not be very much. You might say, well, I don't have very much money, so my royal generosity is 20 bucks, or 5 bucks, or 10 bucks, or whatever. But Solomon's royal generosity... His, his wealth was worth in the billions. And we're going to see as we continue on how, just how much it was worth. It was When he says he gave royal generosity, it means he gave abundantly to her. He gave tremendously to her. Now there's, a, there's something there. Isn't that how God gives to us? Isn't that how it works with us? We give to God according to what we have. And then he gives back to us according to what he has. Think about that for a minute. Now, I'm not teaching a tithing message or giving message. You know, that's, that's not where we're at here. But that's the way God works. You give out of what you have, and you might go, oh, that's not very much. And, but God says, I'm going to give out of what I have. You give, you, you give me generously, I'm going to give to you generously. And I'm not, this is not necessarily just money. This is, this is all of the things. And, and just, just so we're clear, I'm, like I said, I'm not teaching a tithe message just so we all understand. We don't take an offering in our church. The offering box is in the back. If the Lord leaves you to give, give. I don't get paid. I don't get a salary. I, don't do, I, I, I still work on, I still have businesses that I'm running. So I'm not trying to say give so I can get more. It doesn't work that way. I don't take a dime out of the church. I give to the church. So when I read this, though, I want you to be clear that my heart is, when I tell you giving to God, he will give back to you. I can tell you it's from experience, and I can tell you it with a clean heart that says, I'm not looking to get anything out of it. I'm not trying to get anything out of it. But it will bless you if you can give to God uh, cheerfully. Be a cheerful giver to the Lord. And you can give to him, and he will bless you in return. 
Now, before we move past the Queen of Sheba, I've got to just briefly mention there's a number of legends floating around about her. Some people suspect, or some, uh, one legend says that, that Solomon fathered a child with her. That child went on down into Ethiopia, became part of their line. Then in the book of Acts, when we see the Ethiopian eunuch get saved, that was part of her lineage that Solomon... Don't, we don't know that for sure. It's all, it's all, as I said, it's all legends. There's, there's several different legends out there. Legends might be true, might not be true. We like to focus on the word, but I do want to mention that because I know someone will say, well, did they have kids? Did, you know, I mean, I know he's got like 700 wives. What's one more? You know, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't know. That's next week, 700 wives. All right, verse 14. Let's look at his wealth. The weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. Do the math, 666 times 75 times 16. Besides that, from traveling merchants, from the income of traders, from all the kings of Arabia, from the governors of the country, I'll save you the math, don't get your phones out. It's almost a billion dollars. Almost a billion dollars of gold, 666 talents of gold. In today's wealth, that is almost a billion dollars a year in salary. In case you're wondering, I looked it up. I wondered how many billionaires are there in the world today? There's 1,810, according to Google. So there's 1,810. I don't know how reliable it is, but that's what they said. 1,810 billionaires in the world, and Solomon, this is Solomon's yearly salary, but it doesn't include, what doesn't include all the traveling merchants, the income from the traders, all the kings of Arabia, and from the governors, it doesn't include all the taxes that come in doesn't include everything else. So can we pretty well agree that, wow, that's a lot of money. When we say wealth, when you talk about the wealthiest person that ever lived, Solomon is there. A billion dollars a year is amazing. But if you're a prophecy person, you go, wait a minute. I recognize that number 666. I've seen that somewhere before. You, st- you taught through Revelation. I know, is, is, there a, is there a correlation here between Solomon and Well, there's only two people in the Bible that are associated with this number, 666. Solomon is one of them right here. And the other one is in Revelation chapter 13, verse 18, and it's speaking of the Antichrist, and it says this. Interestingly, Revelation 13, 18, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. The Bible calls 666 the number of a man. Rob, is Solomon that man? Is he going to be reincarnated? I don't think that Solomon is the Antichrist or was the Antichrist. I don't necessarily think that he's going to be reincarnated as the Antichrist someday. But I do think that we can take a look at Solomon and we can learn something about the Antichrist. Because I don't think that there's a mistake or a coincidence that both of these men one who we know is Solomon, one who is, we don't know, his identity is unknown, that will come on the scene during the tribulation period. We can look at Solomon's life and go, just maybe, just maybe we can see some, some characteristics, some personality traits. Maybe there's going to be some similarities there. It may be that the Antichrist comes on the scene as someone who is not purely evil from the beginning. Solomon started out well, didn't he? He started out good. Instead, of, instead, he may be like Solomon, a good man with good intentions. That's the way that he started. But then he becomes corrupted. A little bit of compromise, a little bit of compromise, a little bit of compromise, and there's corruption. Perhaps he will be wealthy. Perhaps he will be wise. 
Perhaps we will be charismatic, impressing those who come to see him. Perhaps we'll be famous. I suspect it'll be all of those things. It'll be someone who is well-liked, someone who is well-respected, someone who's on all the magazine covers, written about in all the blogs. Now, I have to confess that I'm a pre-tribulation, pre-millennialist, so I won't be here. I don't believe the body of Christ. I believe will be taken up in the rapture of the church prior to that taking place. If I just confused you with all that, go back and listen to the series on Revelation. I'll explain it very deeply in about 30 weeks. <laughs> now, when you look at Solomon's wealth, is there a problem with the wealth? Is there a problem with having this much gold? I mean, do you think that it's like, Solomon, this is just ridiculous. This is, what are you doing? This is, how do you have this much gold? Is, is there a problem with this? The answer is yes, there is. What's the problem, Rob? He's being disobedient to God's command. He's literally being disobedient to what God committed. I want to read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 17. We've turned there and referenced it before, but I want to read it to you. Actually, turn there with me. It's good for you to know where it's at. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 17. A few pages to the left. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 17. Verse 14 says this. When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. We saw that happen, didn't we? You will surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Now look at verse 16. But he, that's the king, shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. And in verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Now it doesn't say that he shouldn't be wealthy. What does it say there? Greatly multiply. Neither shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. God tells the future kings of Israel, I don't want you to do these three things. These three, these three things don't do. Don't multiply horses to yourself or cause the people to go to Egypt. Don't multiply wives to yourself. And don't, multiply, don't greatly multiply silver and gold. Wealth is okay, but notice what it says. Do not greatly. Do not get so great. Be careful of that. Watch for that. You would think, well, he's just being industrious. He's just being an entrepreneur. He's just being a good businessman. He can't help it. I am sure King Solomon justified it in that exact same way. Look at verse 16. This is what you do when you don't, have, when you don't, when you don't know what to do with your money. And King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 shields of hammered gold. Three minas of gold went into each shield. The king put them in his house of the forest of Lebanon. He made decorations. That's what he did. He's going to make shields to hang on the wall. He's making decorations. They're no good for battle. Why? Because number one, they're too heavy. And number two, gold is soft. Gold is a very heavy metal. It's heavy. You couldn't use them. These are decorations to hang in the house. Isn't it funny that Solomon was not a man of war, yet he's making instruments of war as his decorations? 
Solomon wasn't a man of war. He never fought a war in his life. David fought a war. David was a man of war, not Solomon. But Solomon wants to look like he's a man of war. I'm going to make gold shields, bunches of them. Let's look at the rest of his home decor. Verse 18, moreover the throne, moreover the king made a great throne of ivory. He overlaid it with pure gold. The throne had six steps and the top of the throne was round at the back. There were armrests on either side of the place of the seat and two lions stood beside the armrests. Twelve lions stood there, one on each side of the six steps. Nothing like this had been made for any other kingdom. He wanted to be the first and the best. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon, that's the name for his house, were pure gold. Not one was silver, for this was accounted as nothing in the days of Solomon. In other words, silver? We don't need silver. We got gold. We got more gold than we know. We're going to make shields. We got more gold we know what to do with. We don't need silver. Wealth in abundance. Now let's look at his other business endeavors. Verse 22. For the king had merchant ships at sea with the fleet of Haram. Once every three years the merchant ships came bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and monkeys. So King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. So he also had a, he had a fleet of ships sailing over in the Mediterranean Sea, gathering, trading. He was the wealthiest man on earth. He would have certainly made the cover of Forbes magazine. He would have been the one on top. He would have been the guy getting all the recognition. He was also the wisest king on the earth. Look at verse 24. Now all the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Notice where his wisdom came from. Which God had put in his heart. God had put in his heart. And one of the saddest things we'll see about Solomon is he failed to follow his own wisdom. He could answer all the questions. He could give you all the advice. He could give you all the wisdom. But he failed to live what he knew was wise. How tragic is that? How tragic is it for the person that knows the right thing to do and does not do it? The Bible says to him that is sin. To know the right thing to do and, do not, and doesn't do it. Uh, where did I leave off? Uh, verse 24. Now all the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Each man brought his present articles of silver, gold, garments, armor, spices, horses, and mules at a set rate year by year. Verse 26, Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Wasn't supposed to do that either, was he? Whom he stationed in the chariot cities with the king at Jerusalem. Then the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. He made cedar trees as abundant as the sycamores, which are in the lowland. The stock market is soaring. The wealth in Jerusalem is incredible. Verse 28, also Solomon had horses imported from Egypt. Didn't we just read about that? He had imported from Egypt in Keva. Keva. The king's merchants bought them in Keva in the current price. Now a chariot was that imported from Egypt, cost 600 shekels of silver, and a horse 150, and thus... Through their agents, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Uh-oh. Solomon wasn't supposed to be multiplying gold, wasn't supposed to be multiplying horses, wasn't supposed to be multiplying wives, and now we read he's importing horses from Egypt. Wasn't supposed to be causing people to go back. Remember, they were delivered from Egypt. They were supposed to stay away from Egypt. But now he's causing people to go back. Is there a problem with this? Yes. Why is he building an army? He doesn't need an army. He's never been in a battle in his life. 
This was direct disobedience to God in what we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 17. You shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. I am sure Solomon justified this in his mind. Wait, 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 wait. I'm just an import-export business. I'm just doing this. Look, I'm just doing this so the people of, of Jerusalem can be blessed. Silver is like stones. No, you don't understand. I know that we're not supposed to, but, but it's, a, it's bringing a blessing in our lives. It's bringing a blessing in my life. It's just that I don't really take them. I'm just importing them, and then I'm exporting them. So they're kind of going in and coming out. And Many examples of gross disobedience begin as clever rationalizations. I wrote that down because I liked it. Many examples of gross disobedience begin as clever rationalizations. I'm guilty of that. You're guilty of that. We can rationalize just about anything in our mind, can't we? I can get an idea and I can make it work and I can find a Bible verse and I can have an experience and I can say this and I can say that. I can, I can, listen, when it goes against the word of God, it's wrong. Plain and simple. It's wrong. It doesn't matter that Jerusalem is being blessed and the people are being blessed and silver and gold are being multiplied. It doesn't matter that their stock market is soaring. When it's built on principles that are disobedient to God's word, it is wrong. There's nothing that will rationalize it. When there's things in your life, it's the same way. You could run a business and be ungodly in doing so. And that business might be blessed, but it's still wrong. It will come down. It will... will, God... Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. If he sows to the Spirit, it will be of the Spirit. If he sows to the flesh, it will be of the flesh. It will not last forever. But God is patient, and he's gracious, and he will give you time. He will give me time to make those things right. Now, here's what we're going to see. Solomon's life, starting next week, is going to come crashing down. This week, he's at the top. He's here. He, He has accomplished everything. He's on the cover of the magazine. He is it. Everybody wants a piece of him. And then we're going to watch as he slowly comes crashing down. All of those little compromises that we've seen throughout his life are all going to come to fruition next week. Before we close, as always, I want to take just a few minutes and uh, spend a few minutes in prayer quietly before you and the Lord. Because I know that when you hear stuff like this, when you study the word, I know the Lord has stuff that he wants to say to you. So just take three minutes, three or four minutes Go to the Lord quietly and say, Lord, is there anything in my life? Is there compromise? Am I doing this? Am I, is there, is, am I rationalizing something that's wrong? Is there something in my life that needs... Am I, am, I, am I in disobedience to your word somewhere? And it's real simple. If you are, it's time to repent. It's time to not leave here carrying that burden. It's time to say, Lord, forgive me. And the grace of God, the wonderful thing is he says, I will forgive you. I will forgive you. I'll take it away. I'll start, let you start over. And if you don't know Jesus Christ or you've been that person that says, you know what, I've, I've heard about God. I've given glory to God, but I, he's not my God. He's Solomon's God or he's your God or he's my neighbor's God or he needs to be your God. You need to go before the Lord tonight and tell him that you're a sinner, that you need forgiveness for sins, and you need to say from this day forward, I will follow you. I will be your servant, Lord, and I will serve you. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your word and your truth. And may you speak to our hearts, Lord. You know what we need to hear. Lord, may nobody leave here without knowing that you spoke to them tonight. May we not just listen as it goes in one ear and out the other, but may we listen as in we obey it. So speak now, Lord.